Will UK supporters of Brexit be getting what they thought they were voting for on January 31st? What will Brexit mean for the future of the UK and the future of global commerce? What were the factors that contributed to the defeat of Jeremy Corbyn in the recent election? What does the departure of Jeremy Corbyn mean for the future of the Labour Party and Labour Party policy? What do the disclosures by OPCW whistleblowers at the British House of Commons tell us about the integrity of official watchdog organizations, including the media? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio program, we discuss some of the recent developments unraveling in the United Kingdom and what they mean for the country, the European region, and the world. For the bulk of the hour, we will hear from political studies professor Radhika Desai and from journalist Yuri Smouter about Brexit, the UK election, and the dynamics within the British Labour Party. Toward the end of the hour, Patrick Henningsen shares information about an important session of the House of Commons at which whistleblowers from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons spoke. On this week's program, UK News, Brexit, the election, and OPCW disclosures. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 31st, 2020. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on Okipara and Shinabega King, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Dr. Maria van der Kerkhoff of the WHO stated that one of the reasons why the growth in coronavirus diagnoses has been so rapid is because the Chinese government had published a full genome mapping of the new variant within days of the initial outbreak, making diagnosis easier. This is possible partially because China has been producing an academic golden generation of doctoral candidates in the biological sciences over the past 15 to 20 years. China has got an absolutely massive academic talent pool in the life sciences, especially in molecular biology, microbiology, and biochemistry. In other words, Dr. van der Kerkhoff argued the rapid increase in newly diagnosed cases should be interpreted as a positive rather than as a negative insofar as it was an indicator of the proficiency of the Chinese response. It is historically unprecedented that the entire genome sequence of a new virus is published within days of the virus' first appearance. That comes from the article, WHO Impressed by Chinese Response to Coronavirus Outbreak, by Padraig McGrath post-January 30th, originally published on Infobricks. Like all one-time deals, this patchwork state, lacking an army, and where Israel controls its security, borders, coastal waters, and airspace, has an expiry date. It needs to be accepted within four years. Otherwise, Israel will have a free hand to start plundering yet more Palestinian territory. But the truth is that neither Israel nor the U.S. expects or wants the Palestinians to play ball. 
That is why the plan includes, as well as annexation of the settlements, a host of unrealizable preconditions before what remains of Palestine can be recognized. The Palestinian factions must disarm, with Hamas dismantled. The Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas, must strip the families of political prisoners of their stipends, and the Palestinian territories must be reinvented as the Middle East's Switzerland, a flourishing democracy and open society, all while under Israel's boot. That comes from the article, Trump's Deal of the Century Won't Bring Peace. That was the plan. By Jonathan Cook, posted January 30th, first appearing at the National, Abu Dhabi. Trump's deal was intentionally designed to be dismissed by the Palestinians who stand accused of repeatedly rejecting peace plans which were unacceptable. The Palestinians, however, accepted and planned to build upon the Oslo Accords. Their aim was to achieve an independent state in only 22% of Palestine. But Israel did not negotiate fruitfully on the basic issues or abide by Oslo's terms and redoubled colonization of the land Palestinians expected for their state in the West Bank and Gaza, with East Jerusalem as its capital. Under Trump's plan, Palestinians lose control of security in the 18% ruled by the Palestinian Authority according to Oslo, although Israeli forces constantly enter this area in violation of Oslo. That comes from the article, Trump's Skewed Vision Gives Israel Everything It Wants, by Michael Jansen, posted January 30th, originally published on The Jordan Times. A freedom of information request to the FBI, which did not mention Seth Rich, but asked for all email correspondence between FBI head of counterterrorism Peter Strzok, who headed the investigation into the DNC leaks and WikiLeaks, and FBI attorney Lisa Page, has revealed two pages of emails which do not merely mention Seth Rich, but have Seth Rich as their heading. The emails were provided in, to say the least, heavily redacted form. Before I analyze these particular emails, I should make plain that they are not the major point. The major point is that the FBI claimed it had no records mentioning Seth Rich, and these have come to light in response to a different FOIA request that was not about him. What other falsely denied documents does the FBI hold about Rich that were not fortuitously picked up by a search for correspondence between two named individuals? That comes from the article, The FBI Has Been Lying About Steth Rich, by Craig Murray, posted January 30th, originally published at the author's website. Although Singapore is more aligned with the U.S., its Air Force does not match its ambitions. However, the acquisition of the U.S.-made F-35s aims to create the island country into a powerful, small power in one of the most important geostrategic locations in the world. The F-35 creates many advantages in the Malacca Straits for the U.S. and Singapore. In the event of a war in the region, the Straits could be closed to China, creating significant economic and logistical problems for China's engagement with the rest of the world. In this way, Singapore's acquisition of modern aircraft means not only increased control of the Straits, which is critical for military and commercial navigation, but also the possibility for the U.S. and Singapore to quickly dispatching reinforcements to areas where potential combat in the South China Sea, Taiwan, and the Korean Peninsula could occur. That comes from the article, Is Singapore About to Become a U.S. Military Hub Against China? by Paul Antonopoulos, 
posted January 30th, originally published on Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Well, within a few short hours of this program first going to air, the goal of officially withdrawing the United Kingdom from the European Union will have been realized. The UK will henceforward have no representation in EU bodies, such as the European Parliament and the European Court of Justice. A £30 billion payment in settlement of liabilities is expected to be paid. And a customs border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain will be established. A transition period will allow the UK and the remaining 27 EU member states to negotiate a new relationship on trade and security. The state of affairs was enabled by the December election, which resulted in a massive majority for Boris Johnson's conservatives with their simple election promise to get Brexit done, thereby obliterating any further opposition and resistance to the Brexit plans he had in mind. Well, to discuss Brexit, uh, the election that triggered it, and the future of the kingdom and its political institutions, I'm joined by two guests. Uh, Radhika Desai is professor of the Department of Political Studies and a director of the Geopolitical Economies Research Group at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Uh, she co-edits the Geopolitical Economy book series with Manchester University and the Future of Capitalism book series with Pluto Press. Journalist Yuri Smouter is launching an online current affairs program. He was present at last September's Labour Party conference and wrote a three-part article detailing some of the dynamics within the party, which presaged the uh, December election result. Uh, he joins us from Belgium. So Radhika Desai, uh, Yuri, uh, welcome. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Now, I, I think we'll we'll start uh, with uh, Radhika here. I know that you've done a lot of research on uh, this uh, uh, Brexit situation, and not just the bill, but a lot uh, going into it. And you know, there's uh, we know that there's a lot of legitimate criticism uh, of the EU. You know, coming from you know, left circles, they have the, the so-called Lexit people. You know. Uh, however, it's uh, certainly uh, questionable whether they really are going to be ending ending up getting what they may have thought they were voting for when uh, regulations from the EU is being relaxed, when you have a, uh, you know, US-UK talks over uh, a trade agreement and a disclosure of some of the different um, – you know some some meetings that have been taking place. Uh, this is dispo- disclosed by Channel Four News about the uh, you know taking the cap off of. Uh, this is all you know come out to, you know sort of clandestinely, but uh, an agreement to take the cap off of uh, drug pricing uh, from uh, drugs from the U.S. And so, what, what one wonders if we aren't uh, going from the EU neoliberal frying pan to the U.S. austerity fire. Well, what is your read on the situation? I think um, today, when Britain leaves the EU, um, it, the, the Britain will enter a 
year long period well let me put it first of all that we are at this point in time in a very liminal moment because britain is a, about to depart from the eu and then it faces a year long process of nego- re- essentially negotiating what sort of relationship it will have with the eu and obviously this negotiation has a, this bit of a feel of you know frying pan into the fire in the sense that uh, you know for example already the eu leaders have come out and said that there is no way that the new relationship will be as favorable to britain as the B membership has been etc etc so um there is so anyway it's a very liminal moment and in the year, coming year there will be a whole lot of tensions playing themselves out and these come from a multitude of different directions so for example you could say that uh, uh, an on, on a simple reading yes uh, at some level there is a, a reasonably large number of people within the tory party who would say let's be done with the eu and let's enter into a closer relationship with the united states which is simply you know for the deregulation race to the bottom type britain at the same time Brexit has essentially itself been a result of a major political crisis initially of the conservative party which the long process of uh, you know of between the sort of the, the previous election the pre- previous two before the, the 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 election the 2016 Cameron, the yeah. 20 the 2015 election and now the 2015 election was won by promising brexit uh so the cameron won a majority then he had the referendum in 2016 so that whole long process in this long process what had originally been a crisis of the conservative party which it tried to solve by promising and then delivering on a referendum because it was bleeding support to nigel farage's uh, ukip and then later brexit party etc so this cr- the attempt to resolve this crisis eventually also became a crisis of the labor party so in a sense there is a crisis of the whole political system and uh in this uh, boris johnson secured his victory by essentially appealing to labor brexiteers the voters who had voted for brexit and who were part of the labor party and these people i mean at one level if you stand back and look at it what what is happening in britain right now is simply another example of the tension between the 40 year long policy of ever more neoliberal policies pursued by most governments right and left in most countries of of the first world and the discontents of neoliberalism which has then given rise to populism whether it is of the trump variety or various other varieties so uh, and so the brexit is suffering from that but now it has become a comprehensive party a, a problem of the entire political system now johnson having won his election by appealing to labor brexiteers now faces the problem of how do you c- keep their support while at the same time going for this deregulatory us type system which is open to the us etc mm. so it's not going to be very easy there are going to be numerous different tensions that will be playing out one is the one that i just said the second is johnson has already put the relationship of britain with the uh, with the united states into some danger by giving huawei yes. the role and this has also i mean at one level you have also to see that both not only is domestic politics in a great deal of flux in countries like britain but also internationally the world order is changing and in this changing world order really nothing is is certain 
Hmm. And so a whole lot of different things are up for grabs. As you will remember, I mean, this is not the most recent thing. As you will remember some years ago when China first launched the Asian Investment, uh, uh, Asian Infrastructure, uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, Britain participated in it despite Barack Obama's loud and clear objection to Britain's participation. So we have seen this coming <laughs> in a number like of Huawei, ways. It sounds like the Huawei thing yes. all over again. So, so, so this relationship is also not easy. And, uh, and So there are a number of interesting Internal contradictions. That's right. That the UK International, has to... internal, and then of course there is the whole issue of how Britain will renegotiate its relationship with the EU. Because once you have these very, very close ties that have been built up over the last nearly fifty years, how do you just sever them? I mean, the British are simply banking on the fact mm. that if they really play, uh, the, you know, a tough game with with the European Union, that they will get what they want. But I, I think the European Union also has come to know. Uh, Johnson. So yeah. we will have to see, as I said, there are all these different tensions which will be playing out. Well, we know that uh, there was a, a document that went along with the withdrawal agreement bill, this uh, memorandum concerning the delegating powers. And there's been a lot of concerns that this document uh, and you, that this in conjunction with the WAB, you know, essentially Sorry. we're looking... The, the withdrawal, withdrawal agreement, agreement bill yes. mm-hmm. uh, will effectively cons- confer on Mr. Johnson these, uh, you know, Henry VIII-style powers in the sense that, uh, you know, you can use regulation as a way of uh, of making amendments without necessarily, uh, you know, having any uh, participation on the part of elected representatives. Okay, so it's a, an executive power grab, as it were. So does this not um, represent some sort of... Uh, uh, you know, a further undermining of 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 the the will of of the people of Great Britain. Um, I would say kingdom. that with with Johnson's majority and the way in which the Westminster system works, I mean, he's he has uh, practically unrestricted power. It's a bit like uh, what Mrs. Thatcher had, and I think you are absolutely right. It's going to bring to the fore all sorts of issues that Thatcherism brought to the fore in terms of the way in which the British constitution works because essentially it's a winner-take-all system with a comfortable majority of 80. He's going to have no restrictions on yeah. his power. So um, in that sense, I think that the, yeah, all those issues will come to the fore because if you remember when Mrs. Thatcher became prime minister, within less than a decade of her rule, there was a movement for constitutional reform that emerged. It was called Charter 88 because, and it emerged precisely because all the faults of the British system uh, came to the fore when the old consensus model broke down and one party with a majority could ram through next to anything it wanted without any opposition. Mm. Yeah, and... I'm I'm kind of curious about uh, you know some of the the, the regional dynamics here uh, because I mean like I mentioned earlier the customs wall between uh, Northern Ireland and Great Britain and uh, that's that's going to be a, a potential uh, you know concern I mean yet you know not just a geographical but then this uh, this customs barrier as well and you know what that's going to mean in terms of the the integrity of the United Kingdom not to mention Scotland uh, th- threatening uh, or you know 
promising uh, another independence referendum? Are, are we looking at uh, sort of the, the disillusion of the United Kingdom uh, as an isolated entity? I think that's very possible. Uh, I certainly think that the recent events have brought the possibility of the unification of Ireland a lot closer. And that may be one of the inadvertently good things to come out of this. Um, because, uh, I, as you know, Northern Ireland, as well as Scotland, both voted with substantial majorities to remain. So, uh, so and, and, and as you know, Mrs. Uh, Miss, uh, Nicola Sturgeon has also been making noises about bringing forward a Scottish independence referendum. So these possibilities are there. And I would like to underline that in some ways, these possibilities have emerged precisely because, I mean, Mrs. May failed uh, in doing what she was trying to do precisely because she would not give up on Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson essentially saw the chance that if he gave up on Northern Ireland, that he had a chance of winning in England. And he felt that that was a, it was an, it was a, it was a, it's a, a price that he was willing to pay uh, for being able to win in England. And so that's what he has done. He said, essentially, he has said that if Northern Ireland needs to go, it needs to go, which means that the crisis is so great that his party, which, whose official name is the Conservative and Unionist Party, has won this election by dropping one of the key historic uh, platforms, mm. uh, that is to say the union with Northern Ireland. Yeah. It's it's he sacrificed that. Yeah, of course Northern Ireland MPs were critical to Theresa May holding a majority and hence you got an election where they just said okay, let's just <laughs> Well, focus I think on it England. was more than that. I think in her case it was because she could have done what Johnson did. Go talk to Varadkar and say, you mm. know, I'll she didn't do it not because she relied on DUP votes. I think she did it because she didn't want to be the conservative leader who broke the union. Okay. Um just keeping the focus on Brexit. Um, I know that since the 2008 economic crisis, we've seen uh, – well, Europe was very – particularly affected by that. Uh, They they were very heavily invested in the the whole – you know, the subprime mortgage and and that whole – you know, the the housing bubbles. But we've seen a major decline in in major capital flows between uh, the European Union and the United States uh, since 2008. I don't think it's even recovered yet. So – I'm I'm kind of curious when you look at United Kingdom. In London's a very important financial sector, as you know, and their people are going to be um, you know, removed. That that bank, their banking uh, uh, sectors are going to be removed from the U- European banking system. Does what does that mean for Europe? You know, UK being so you know connected with the United States with their dollar-denominated system and Europe. I mean, is this going to be um, a handicap or is this like opening up opportunities for for the European banking sector? What do you think? I think certainly. I mean, I, I actually I wrote about this a, a while back. In fact, soon after the original Brexit vote, um, historically, the city has been very critical to decisions about Europe. So, you know, there is evidence to show that Britain, the British ruling class essentially became very committed to joining the, uh, the EU precisely because the city felt that this was absolutely necessary for its survival. Now, however, the city is a very different place. The the city is no longer dominated by specifically British financial houses. It is basically all sorts of foreign houses, including European ones and American ones. 
And partly as a result of that, there hasn't really been a unified city voice. The city is itself uh, uh, divided among all mm. different types of financial services and who they are oriented towards and, who, you know, where they're from and all these things. So essentially, and, and in this period, I remember reading somewhere that in this period of uh, extreme flux between 2016 and now, the city of London has actually lost its sort of premier position in terms of, you know, where financial services would invest to, to New York. It had been much bigger and now people say, well, New York is a better place, particularly given uh, these. But I think basically what's going to happen to the city is that there will be a slow but uh, a fairly steady, I think, a migration of a number of houses over to Europe. Some will remain there, but overall, the, as you know, the city's uh, you know profits and and business has shrunk in the context of the uh, 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 post two thousand and eight. Uh, uh, crisis, um, and so this will probably continue to bleed away further. And of course, looking further down the road, five, ten years down the road, I think we will be looking increasingly at a highly regionalized international monetary and financial system, which means that there will be regional centers of uh, regional financial centers. And if there is going to be a major, shall we say, um, major international world financial center, it might even come to be in China. Because the thing is that the, the other broader context is that the dollar system is increasingly receding in many ways. Its attractions are receding. Uh, it is simply too threatening to the stability of, um, uh, uh, of, of national economies to really be uh, sustainable. So people are slowly withdrawing from it. The Europeans, as you rightly pointed out, have withdrawn from it to a very substantial extent. And so the sheer extent of dollar uh, international capital flows which most of which are today dollar denominated has shrunk quite a lot plus china has far more secure financial muscle mm. uh, which is on based on a more solid foundation so this is the broad context in which the city is operating so the city will of course the individual uh, groups of uh, firms and firms within the city will do what they can to keep you know their business going but whether it amounts to a single strategy today is open to question. There are some that are oriented, about a quarter of the earnings of the city at today seem to come from the European Union. Mm -hmm. So that will clearly, there will be some uh, uh, movement there. But increasingly participating in the dollar-denominated system is not that attractive either. And the city has certainly, firms in the city have certainly bought their financial insurance by joining the AIIB and, and Britain joining the AIIB and so on. So we are going to look at a very mixed picture from that point of view. I want to turn our, our attention to the December 12th election and, and some of what happened there because uh, we haven't really had a chance to uh, fully uh, debrief that uh, election on the show. But uh, I, I know that t two of the uh, major concerns that uh, were raised with regard to the way that that election turned out was the uh, the level the, the media barrage against uh, Mr. Uh, Corbyn. As well as the uh, you know and the, and the charges of uh, you know anti-Semitism, uh, and also the uh, of course the the divisions within the Labour Party over Brexit. And in fact, there, there was just recently released a uh, um, uh, an internal report from the Labour Party uh, headed by uh, 
uh, Andrew Gwynn and Ian Lavery, essentially saying that, uh, well, I'll quote, it would be unrealistic not to accept that policy on how or whether Britain should leave the European Union and perceptions as to how the issue was handled in Parliament played a decisive part of, in the election. But uh, Labour's campaign made strenuous efforts to direct the debate towards other pressing economic and social questions, but with only limited success. It should be noted, however, that our radical manifesto and Jerry Corbyn were attacked in 2017 on identical grounds and with comparable venom, yet Labour secured the biggest increase in its share of the vote since 1945. And it is unlikely that radicalism was in itself the problem in a country looking for change. And they, they're basically saying that Corbyn himself is, is pretty much off the hook in terms of why what went wrong. Uh, so uh, your, your take, if I may, and, and Yuri, I'll, I'll give you a chance to uh, sound off because I, I know you've got an mm-hmm. interesting perspective on this as well. But Radhika, if you wanted to just... Uh, I, 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 I think that the report is fairly credible, I, what you've read out. And, and, and I, I would say that um, the camp, there, are, there are basically uh, two different things involved. Number one, there was the whole anti-Semitism campaign against Jeremy Corbyn. The second very important thing is that the reason why Labour's position on Europe was not clear, as was uh, pointed out. The chief reason for that is that Labour still remains dominated by the parliamentary, sorry, let me rephrase that, the parliamentary Labour Party, that is to say what we would call the parliamentary caucus of the Labour Party, remains dominated by Remainers who simply refused to allow Corbyn to have a clearer policy that would have been more sort of uh, in favour of Brexit and would have secured um, victory especially in Labour Brexit, uh, Brexit among Brexit voting la- uh, uh, Labour voters and, 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 and so on. But I agree with you. I think that uh, in the 2017 election, the radicalism itself was not an issue. It actually brought, it actually captured the core Labour vote and it captured more votes of younger people and so on. So I think that Corbyn has, you know, the Corbyn leadership has been a great success. And I would not say that uh, the, I think that the report seemed to say that um, the attack on Corbyn in 2017 was just as great, but I would beg to differ. I think that in more re- in the last uh, little while, it the whole chorus became far shriller and more audible and and relentless. And I think that that's a very important uh, point to make. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Okay, Yuri Smouter, you had attended a, uh, mm-hmm. a Labour Party conference in September and uh, had a chance to to speak with and and meet with and and listen to uh, many of the uh, people within the party and including MPs uh does does this uh assessment of like and, and from my reading of your own uh draft report it, it seems like you pretty much presaged the uh the election result uh so do you want to build on a, a little bit maybe points that weren't quite uh we hadn't quite gotten to yet uh, in this discussion yeah definitely i mean uh, I mean, well, first of all, Bre- the whole Brexit referendum itself was, you know, you know, was quite remarkable, and I and I think Radhika definitely laid it out perfectly that there was these, that there was so many of these contradictions. You, it was basically, 
you know, this UK civil war where you had basically two warring factions of the Tory party. So you had these Tories that were, that were remainers. I mean, it was, it was Ed Heath and Margaret Thatcher that signed, that signed the UK up to the European Union. And, and the Labour Party itself, funny enough, uh, uh, I mean, these sort of, uh, you know, the, the sort of labor supporters that would have supported uh, Tony Benn. I mean, these they were the original Euroskeptics. They were the original Euroskeptics who thought that the who thought that the European Union was basically a neo uh, a neoliberal institution. Jeremy Corbyn himself was uh, was once upon a time what we what we would have called a uh, Lexiteer. Who later, uh, when he, you know, remarkably, you know, became leader of the Labour Party because they made, you know, the because it, it, the Labour Party became much more democratic in which members could have could could have a say on who on who the leader was going to be. Jeremy Corbyn later had to, later sort of changed his position on on the European Union into that of a Lexiteer into one of what I would call a an, an EU left reformist, the sort of Yanis Varoufakis's school of thought, which is. Which is that? Which is the EU? You know, can be made into a much more social justice uh, body, but uh, but you know, you have to be in it to reform it. Mm. And um, with regard to the uh, the attacks on uh, on Mr. Corbyn, uh, they uh, we know that there was uh, there's been a, a very hostile attitude coming from the, the media. And I, I don't know how closely either of you followed it, but uh, and, and it not just confined to the campaign; it had been ongoing for for some time. Uh, I am unprecedented. It, de- it def- I mean, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn. The moment he, beca- I mean, even before he became leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn had this unprecedented attack from the entire uh, the entire establishment. Whether it was from the, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he exactly. No, he. It was unprecedented. The 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 hostility he faced, and no doubt, uh, I mean, I completely underestimated how powerful the media organ was in, in defeating Jeremy Corbyn, because, uh, yeah, because what I mean, what because with that, I mean, with 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 media outlets like the Guardian, the New Statesman, and so forth, being very hostile to him, you also had, of course, the uh, the Israel lobby that completely, uh, you know, demolished Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, and and I think that the rightness of uh, Corbyn's message that the, that a more radical policy would have won is further reinforced by the fact that Boris Johnson has won this election by essentially, uh, 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 you know, essentially dusting off the old red Tory tradition and sort of donning those clothes and 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 gaining Labour votes from you know gaining votes from the Labour heartland. So he now is trying to position himself as a red Tory. Of course, he's not going to be able to maintain this. It's going to be one of these contradictions, and his personality, of course, is going to be going to be called on uh, quite a bit, you know, to do these flip flops, which he has be habitually been doing. But after a point, people will realize that these are real flip flops. It's not just you know Boris being uh, lovable bumptious clown or something but in fact he is being you know, the, these are serious flip-flops that, that are costing people so this you know Boris magic is going to wear off I'm sure very soon Yeah. well you at the, the outset you talked about the, uh, the, the, the ruling class in crisis as a result of this whole Brexit uh, soap opera and you were, we were seeing these attacks on, on Corbyn and 
arguably in large part because there's yes. there are actually policies I mean, there that are uh, you know i think i think the best way to understand the uh, present situation vis-a-vis the crisis in uh, in the general political system and within the labor party as well is the following i mean historically left of center parties have uh, been a, a, a mix of two key elements uh, the fabians used to have this uh, little rather condescending way of talking about it. They called it brains and numbers. Mm. That is to say that a substantial section of the intellectual class came over to the side of the workers and in across Europe you have found that social democratic or labor parties have been built as a result of this coalition. And uh, I would say that in the roughly around the time with the, the beginning, the onset of neoliberalism, you began to see tensions in this relationship. So you had, for example, in 1981, a goodly number of the intellectual classes departing in to form the Social Democratic Party, which eventually became the Liberal Democrats. You know, they joined with the Liberals to create the Liberal Democratic Party, etc., mm. etc. So this sort of intellectual class, especially, and then, and then, and then pe- leaders like Tony Blair come along and essentially moves the, uh, the Labour Party to the right. And this was much more so, you know, economically liberal po- uh, policies as well as socially liberal policies became so, you know, you, you stand up for women's rights and gay rights and, and, and all these things, but you pursue an economically neoliberal agenda. So that became the sort of home of the Labour Party. But of course, the neoliberalism was creating more and more discontent. And uh, so anyway, so so this uh, movement to the right has meant that the parliamentary Labour Party remains the uh, a Blairite stronghold, mm. while in the rest of the country, in the country as a whole, the party is further to the left. But because these are two important elements in the Labour Party, essentially there is now this, this sort of civil war within the Labour Party. Now, we will see, you know, as you see right now, the Labour Party is building up towards a leadership election we will see there is at least one candidate that represents the Corbyn tradition, Long Bailey. And then there are, you know, Keir Starmer and others are sort of trying to move the Labour, you know, sort of reposition the Labour Party further to the right. We will have to see how it turns out, uh, you know, who wins that election. Um, Because, again, as I say, Johnson has already demonstrated that some sort of break with neoliberalism is the electoral necessity. I but to, to what extent is it? can it be done given the power of the ruling class? Now, I, I want to bring in uh, Yuri again uh, because I, I know that there was a third part to your article having to do with foreign policy, and there were already some very disturbing signs at that point at the, the conference that you attended about uh, its orientation, which which is you know effectively on a various imperialist uh, you know, just yeah. looking at this uh, Corbyn's shadow cabinet and, and some of the characters that you ran into there. Uh, yeah, and actually, uh, b- b- before I comment on that, uh, I, I just also want to mention that it was uh, you know it was interesting you know when the when when Brexit you know did happen. It was, you know, what swung, you know, uh, you know, you know, Brexit, you know, you know, you know, what made the Leave campaign was, was that basically the North, the Midlands, and Wales all vote, all voted overwhelmingly to leave the European uh, uh, Union, and these are for what what you call traditional labor heartland areas, you know, basically ground zero of deindustrialization and some of the hideous policies of exactly. Margaret yeah. Coal mining and that, yeah. And the sh- exactly, and you know, and the shock doctrine, and that's why uh, you know, for me, it was uh, you know, 
you know, for me, it was almost electoral suicide for the Labour Party to adopt a second referendum and overturning Brexit because they basically had to win over those people over. And, okay, some of them may have voted uh, for xenophobic reasons, but others basically voted, you know, for, you know, you know, you know, for the uh, Lexit reasons. And and because, you know, the opposition was, you know, you know, you know, kept, you know, stopping Brexit by all means, whether it was a soft Brexit of Theresa May's or even Boris Johnson's, you know, Brexit. And I think that just created more and more of a backlash where were that plus the uh, foolish tactical voting uh, spelled, uh, you know, you know, doom for, you know, for uh, for Corbyn. It's certainly awkward to to renegotiate this deal and then be neutral on uh, whether or not people should support it. I mean, you should actually believe in <laughs> exactly. something, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh Oh, yeah. Uh, what, what was your question again? About oh, yeah. Well, the, the foreign policy question, because there were so many figures within uh, Mr. Corbyn's cabinet that were, were very closely aligned uh, with uh, the imperialist policy, be it Syria or uh, you know other countries, right? Yes. And, I, and, and going to the Labour Party conference uh, – I mean, you could you could feel that 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 some people of the Palestine justice movement and even the broader anti anti-war imperial movement were starting to become demoralized. So so for example, I mean, just on the issue of uh, you know just on the issue of uh, you know of you know of Venezuela, here you have this democratic social so, you know socialist government which is under siege in Venezuela. Uh, by uh, you know by a right wing backed uh, opposition which is backed by you know Canada the US and the UK well Emily Thornberry uh, Jeremy Corbyn's shadow uh, uh, shadow foreign, foreign secretary, secretary. Yeah. she said last year at the Labour Party conference she equated um, the Maduro government with the Saudi regime and Duterte's Philippines. <laughs> And then called him, uh, and and then at this year's party conference, I was told by people who who attended her speech that 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 that, that she called uh, Maduro a third world dictator. Um, I just I think Yuri has a very important point to make, and uh, uh, on the point you see, and it is to satisfy this fairly right wing Blairite parliamentary cau- uh, section of the parliamentary caucus that the, uh, Corbyn was forced to ask for a second referendum. Remember, I mean, at one level. Who are these people representing? The Liberal Democrats, who are, you know, total Remainers, plus these people who would rather work with the Liberal Democrats. As you know, many Labour Party uh, 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 parli- uh, parli- MPs actually left the Labour Party, and some of them joined the Liberal Democrats, and other people have simply s- retired from political life. But these people represent this sort of essentially a, a, a well-to-do middle-class perspective for whom the EU is great. On the one hand, it brings in cheap labour, which is going to then, you know work in all the cafes and restaurants and so on, which they can then patronize. Um, And on the other hand, they and their children can work anywhere in the European Union. For them, it's a whole you know, exactly. open field. And and so that's all they think about. That's all they think about. But, uh, and, and these were the people to satisfy whom Corbyn was forced to promise this confusing second referendum, etc., etc. And also remember, uh, we also have to look at the EU. Now, 
the EU with the British exit will be left, in a sense, in many ways uh, free to pursue greater integration on uh, uh, which it says, you know, and, and, and there will be less of a dissonance because Britain has always been the sort of odd one out, pushing in a more deregulatory direction, etc. However, the internal logic of the EU has always been uh, German dominance, um, and the German mm-hmm. dominance is the is the one element that ensures that the EU cannot proceed further. At this point, it ensures that EU cannot proceed towards further integration because unless Germany invests massively in the economic reconstruction of the weaker members of the, of the EU, the southern and the eastern periphery of the EU, Germany will have to foot the bill for them in many ways. And it, Germans are not willing to do that. I mean, essentially, they don't have fiscal federalism in the European Union. And essentially, the European Union so far has all it has succeeded in doing is serving uh, the needs of an expansionist German capitalism. Uh, beyond that, it has not done much. And so can, unless there is root and branch rethinking of the purposes and in fact total political reconstruction of the European Union, I'm not sure that the EU is going to be going anywhere good. And so in that sense, I think defending membership in the EU has always been problematic from this point of view. Okay. I just want to get one uh, more, one more quick uh, Point of view from both of you, um, the, the the Blairites versus the the Momentum folks. I mean, uh, you know, it does seem as if the the, the Blairites have begun, gotten a bit of a boost as a result of Mr. Corbyn's uh, departure. But I, uh, it does seem as all well that Momentum is a within the Labour Party is still a force to be reckoned with. So, h- how is this situation going to resolve itself? Well, the problem with with uh, Momentum is even though uh, Momentum. They do. Uh, I mean, they do want you know socialist reforms in Britain, and they do. Uh, and 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 much of the leadership of Momentum has adopted a kind of EU left reformist. But the problem is, is because they 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 sort of joined forces with the Blairites in in in, in pushing Corbyn to uh, to adopt a second referendum. That you know, of course, you know, you know, as we all know, that sort of backfired. And momentum, you know, sort of going back to your previous question about for, about foreign policy, and and, and some of the and, and a lot of the red flags I noticed when I was at the Labour Party conference is, uh, you know, the Israel lobby definitely destroyed Jeremy Corbyn's uh, chances, and unfortunately, I think we still have in the Labour Party, led by uh, you know, organizations like Momentum, led by John Landsman. You still, we still have this problem of the progressive on everything except Palestine, because when the anti-Semitism smears was, you know, was happening, you had Jew, you had Jewish members of the Labour Party, people like uh, Jackie uh, Walker, uh, people like the journalist Aza when Stanley of Electronic Intifada and others kicked out of the Labour Party, led by John Landsman, who himself, you know, who himself is Jewish and and slandered as anti-Semites, when really these were just, uh, you know, people who rightly were speaking out against uh, Israel and and were, you know, advocating a much more just policy towards the Palestinians. But they were kicked out of the Labour Party. And ironically, many of them were actually Jewish people who were just speaking out against, uh, you know, Israel's policies. Yeah. You're, you're referring to that conflation of criticism of Israel with uh, the, the charges of, of anti-Semitism. 
Yeah, and sadly, the Labour Party itself even signed up to this uh, to the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which which when you really look at it, it says that you it basically says that you can't criticize Israel. You can't say that Israel was founded as a uh, you know as a, you know as a racist project or anything uh, like that. I I I think Yuri is right about this, and I just like to add the following. Firstly. The Labour Party signed up to the, f- the the definition, the IHRA definition consists of the definition itself and these 11 odd examples, most of which concern Israel. So initially, the Labour Party had just signed up to the definition and not to the examples. And that would have been a sustainable position. But then there was absolutely relentless pressure for Labour to, to capitulate. And in the end, Labour capitulated. However, and this and, and, and so, so not only did Labour capitulate, but it did so after an extended struggle within the party, which meant that there was further weakening. So I think that so at one level, I think what uh, um, uh, what Yuri has noticed really, and, and, and that has also been my my suspicion, and Yuri confirms this, that the Labour Party left cannot advance further. And lab- the Labour Party left cannot create a secure base for itself for progressive policies unless it also sorts itself out on the foreign policy issue. And sorting itself out means clearly breaking with the consensus foreign policy and saying, look, there's something wrong with this. We need to go in a different direction and and, and stop being, you know, this uh, 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 and, and, and sort of essentially cleanse it of the Blairite, right-wing, liberal internationalist which is essentially imperialist type foreign policy. So I think that unless they really roll up their sleeves and do this, I mean, it's it's possible that in this coming uh, leadership election, Rebecca Long Bailey will win the election. I think she's certainly got a lot of support at the moment. Uh, but if she does, this still remains to be done. I think this is the key point. Okay. I really enjoyed this discussion. So I, I want to thank you both, uh, uh, Radhika Desai, uh, Professor of Political Studies and uh, the uh, Director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba, as well as uh, Yuri Smouter, a journalist uh, based in uh, the south of Belgium. Henningsen is a journalist, writer, geopolitical analyst, and the founder and editor of 21st Century Wire. He'd attended a special session of Parliament on January 22nd involving a presentation on the leaks from OPCW investigators indicating that their findings discrediting claims of a chemical weapons attack on the Syrian city of Douma in April of 2018 were being suppressed. Patrick Henningsen broke down what was discussed in the meeting and its implications. Last week was was a real watershed moment, I think, in this this issue of uh, the uh, supposed or alleged chemical weapons attack, which uh, supposedly we're told by so many governments took place in April of 2018 in Douma, uh, outside of Damascus in Syria. And as as your listeners know, and as everybody knows, uh, this these allegations of a uh, a chemical attack. Initially, they said it was a sarin attack. Then they, they downgraded that to a chlorine attack, uh, and this was used as the pretext for an airstrike by the United States, uh, Great Britain, and France, uh, cruise missile strikes, missile strikes against uh, Syrian targets at the time. And nobody really questioned the pretext for that, or nobody asked you know, what the intelligence was that uh, these governments supposedly had. And uh, the press, of course, at the time were running with sarin. And then later, as the OPCW were 
uh, able to do an investigation and uh, we understood from the interim reports uh, that they had ruled out sarin uh, wasn't present on site that was interesting because that was what was being pushed by the rebels by the white helmets by bellingcat uh, by western uh, leading western mainstream sources and so uh, then they said, no, no, well, definitely uh, we, we, we think that uh, chlorine, uh, chlorine was used. And, and so what we learned last week at the U.N. Security Council meeting, that was an informal meeting uh, using the ARIA, the ARIA format after Diego ARIA, uh, the uh, diplomat from South America, because the U.S., of course, U.K., uh, the parties that were involved in launching this strike against Syria. They didn't want a formal hearing at the UN Security Council. Of course, Russia was pushing for it. Other states were very interested to hear the whistleblower, Ian Henderson, uh, speak at that at that event. He spoke via video link. There were problems with his visa. That's interesting because uh, that's not the first time that's happened in the last 12 months uh, with people due to speak at the UN from countries uh, deemed uh, to be uh, undesirable, let's say by the current U.S. administration. So this is this is unfortunately becoming the norm, these sort of situations. But he appeared by video link. He's a credible engineer, longtime OPCW member of staff. He was actually on the ground team at Duma. And a lot of his findings and what he, he testified with his findings were uh, sanitized uh, at some point between the interim report and the final report, which was released last March 2019, the OPCW final report. This is important because it radically, radically alters the conclusions of the ground investigation team, that there was a considerable doubt as to the possibility of even a chlorine attack and that uh, these supposed two cylinders that were photographed, that everybody's familiar with, these yellow cylinders, were not dropped by aircraft. That uh, They were more likely placed in position. There was evidence of staging. This is really important because this was expunged from the final report. Well, in fact, there, there was a, a move by an internal move by the OPCW to uh, purge uh, Ian Henderson's documents, his um, dissenting opinion, let's say, and uh, analysis from the OPCW's internal archive. So right there, then and there, you have a, a, a cover up. So you have you have two whistleblowers, Ian Henderson and. Uh, one will go by the name of Alex, who presented to the Courage Foundation uh, in Belgium, I believe, uh, some months ago. And uh, that was attended by a number of mainstream journalists, including Jonathan Steele, former Middle East correspondent from The Guardian. Jonathan Steele was at the House of Commons presentation as well. He spoke mm-hmm. along with the uh, Working Group for Syria Propaganda and Media. These are a collection of UK academics who have been uh, researching and investigating these uh, very incidents and who, in fact, received the leak uh, engineering report from Ian Henderson last May. And that kind of started this round of leaks that we're now into uh, quite deeply now. Hmm. And so this this was at the House of Commons uh, just a few days after. It was arranged by the Council. the labor, uh, uh, one of the Shabbat ca- shadow cabinet ministers on uh, Cor- Corbyn's team, right? Well, yeah, uh, his name is Fabian Hamilton. He's uh, a labor MP from the north of England. Now, he he is uh, since um, his his spokespeople, their staffers have since released uh, statements to the Huffington Post, 
who just did a hit piece on uh, this event on the working group academics uh, attacking. Uh, they probably, I would say, leaned on Fabian Hamilton MP's office uh, saying that uh, you do you realize you've hosted conspiracy theorists and so forth. This is the tactic that they usually do to get events canceled. And I, and I would say the, the, the mainstream press, the main hit pieces that are normally written to attack uh, the working group, Piers Robinson, Tim Hayward, these academics, David Miller, is the Huffington Post UK. That's the, the standard uh, establishment vector. Uh, that's used to attack and try to defame and probably and, and libel as well these UK academics and I'm sure they they attacked this uh, MP who booked the room it was an information session it wasn't uh, uh, it shouldn't have been anything that that would be threatening to anybody uh, because of course these leaked documents are public and seeing that the UK along with the US and France were involved in military action based on uh, the the perception that there was a, a chemical weapons attack, if there's exculpatory evidence that comes to light, certainly members of the government should be uh, wanting to see this evidence because, of course, this could come back to haunt uh, the, the, the governments of those countries later if it's seen to be that there was fraud that took place in terms of uh, assembling uh, the story uh, that uh, they acted on. Certainly, we learned that lesson from Iraq, or we should have anyway. The weapons of mass destruction. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. So, so this was a stunning presentation uh, by the working group. Uh, it was the, the meeting was chaired by a former head of the SAS, retired Major General John Holmes, so a military figure of note in Britain. And uh, there were members of the mainstream press there, uh, also people from the House of Lords, uh, as well as MPs. So this this was aired. This was. This was presented, and uh, the evidence is very compelling. Considering there were members of Parliament and, and members of the House of Lords uh, sitting in on this conversation, is is there likely to be any pickup from this, or uh, you know, has the with the the media smears that you you mentioned, uh, has it effectively been kind of contained? Is there any p- prospect of any of these individuals, you know, pushing it to uh, you know, to, to some substantive practical? Um, uh, area where you know, some action can be taken. Yeah, good question. Good question, Michael. I think what you have in this current situation is you have uh, you have the intimidation by uh, certain mainstream media outlets that will attack and try to slander uh, anybody in political life that will want to hear or give a fair hearing to this issue. And so the, the establishment, the military establishment, the U.S. government. Uh, those people in within the NATO structure uh, that uh, want to maintain the status quo, the official narrative as it stands, in their eyes anyway, um, they're going to rely on members of the press to do that attacking, basically. But the, the problem is for them, the story is already out. There's, mm-hmm. there's more than one whistleblower. This isn't just one whistleblower. Normally, you have a single whistleblower. So the, you have two. This, it's not politically motivated, clearly. Uh, this is purely on ethical and professional basis that they have both of these have blown the whistle. There's other whistleblowers, too, that are likely to come forward from what we can gather looking at this story. So the story is already out. So really, this is just a question of reputations and saving face. Well, for sure. Ian Henderson in particular has really been slammed uh, 
uh, I know Bellingcat has been putting out stuff, uh, and, and you know that that would probably cause a chill for anyone. You know, maybe they don't want to uh, speak up. I mean, that's the intention here, right? Sure. Attacking the whistleblower. You have a former mainstream journalists. You have Bellingcat, and of course, they're attacking these whistleblowers because these whistleblowers are presenting a uh, evidence that uh, that goes contrary to the position that was staked immediately uh, when the event took place in 2018 by Bellingcat, by members of the mainstream media, uh, former Guardian Middle East uh, editor uh, Brian Whitaker is another one who is actively attacking these whistleblowers and trying to discredit them from the beginning. There's a couple of other uh, academics uh, as well, Scott Lucas from Birmingham uh, University, he's also attacking and trying to discredit these whistleblowers. So it's it's very suspicious, this behavior by the Bellingcats of the world, by uh, the Huffington Post, by Brian Whitaker, uh, Scott Lucas, and some of these other, this gang, this gaggle of uh, attack dogs mm. that, that just go for anybody that challenges the official narrative on this. That was Patrick Henningsen, journalist, geopolitical analyst, and founder-editor of 21st Century Wire. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week.